we're working through this series, Power from on High, uh, Jesus Ascended. We're going to be working for the next few weeks. What we're doing is looking at it from various perspectives. Past two weeks, what we've looked at is the idea that Jesus Ascended is the priest in the place that we need a priest. Uh, What we've looked at is the idea that a priest had to go into the presence of God. That's a great thing that the priest was able to do in the Old Testament. Uh, The priest went into the presence of God on behalf of the people. uh, And yet our priest has gone into the presence of God as the son of the living God himself and continues to be there. He remains in that place of being our interceding priest and he is doing the work of a priest. Um, That's in a sense, it's why we don't have priests anymore. uh, Because we've got a priest We've got a priest who works continuously for us. Um, I get called all sorts of things, uh, vicar, reverend, priest, whatever it might be. Um, They're all kind of labels that might get attached to me. Uh, The one that I don't need at all, thankfully, is the title priest. don't need that because we've got one. We've got a priest in heaven. That means that Although in the Old Testament it was necessary to go to a priest to to create that link between God and us, we don't need that anymore. All of God's people have got equal access to that priest. I want to encourage you to remember that, that you have equal access to every other believer to the priest that you need. That's great news. So first off, we've got a priest in the place that we need a priest. Second off, I'm going to be looking at this um, over the next two weeks, we've got a king in the place that we need a king. Uh, We've got a king in the place that we need a king. The risen Jesus is our king. There's a U2 song, uh, even better than the real thing. It's a kind of enigmatic set of words. Uh, the chorus goes, you're the real thing, even better than the real thing, which is a kind of, well, how, how does that work? How, how, how can you be the real thing and better than the real thing? In a sense, that's the claim that the Bible makes about Jesus. He's the real thing and even better than the real thing. He is the true king. Uh, and what we see mapped out throughout the whole of the New Testament from the point where Jesus is ascended is this ongoing reminder for us that Jesus is the king in place. Now the place where it is most described, if you want to use that word, it's talked about through the New Testament, but it's described in the book of Revelation in breathtaking language. The book of Revelation, um, if you've not had any connection with the Bible uh, up to now, I'm guessing that you've probably got some idea of some of the stuff in Revelation. We talk about the battle of Armageddon and the four horses of the apocalypse and all of that kind of language. Uh, We hear it in all sorts of ways. In fact, it appears in all sorts of films. That's because the book of Revelation is this amazing set of words and it is just that. It's a set of words. Uh, I've used this description before, and I'll use it again this afternoon to kick us off into this chapter in the book of Revelation. It's the equivalent to a set of Steven Spielberg special effects 
before you could make movies. I want you to imagine uh, going to the cinema today and you go into the, you, you know what kind of movie you're going to watch. It's uh, some sort of, I don't know, sci-fi or something that isn't just a normal play, not a normal part of life. It's nothing that you and I see day to day. One of the ways that uh, cinematography works that out is it creates these breathtaking spectacles in front of us to try to describe stuff that isn't part of our normal existence, doesn't it? So you have these, these kind of effects that are going on. In a sense, that is precisely what apocalyptic writing did. The, the book of Revelation... Um, those of you who want to dig a little bit deeper and to think about this, we need to remember that the Bible is written in different genres, different ways of writing. We understand what genre is. We think about genre when it comes to music. We think about um, disco is a genre of music. Honest. Uh, we think about jazz. We think about classical music. Uh, they're different genres of music, different ways of putting together sets of notes to produce a mu uh, musical interpretation. In exactly the same way, we have different genres of literature. So we understand, don't we? We understand poetry. We understand that poetry um, means certain things because of the language that it uses. So when we read, I floated lonely as a cloud, we don't imagine that either somebody is on an LSD trip or that they're kind of up in the sky. It's an emotional explanation. That's what it is, because it's a genre. We understand that. We don't look out the window to see whether that person is floating when we read that. The problem is that because we don't use apocalyptic language anymore in our day-to-day existence, we, use, we do use letters, we do use histor historical narrative, we do use poetry. In our culture today, we don't use apocalyptic language because we have new technologies to, con to convey things which we can't understand. So when we read something like Revelation chapter 4, we immediately try to constrain it into our way of thinking. How does this fit? Have we got uh, beasts with lots of eyes and wings? No. <laughs> We've got massive language, big picture language to try to describe the undescribable because we haven't got the tools to do it. I hope that's helpful. It's just a way of kicking off uh, our journey through this chapter. So here we've got this idea of the ascended Jesus. We see it at the beginning of Acts where we see the human perspective of what is going on. Just for a moment, imagine what it was like. You and I are on the top of that mountain and we're with a whole band of other people who witnessed this incredible event where Jesus, who we have known, who we, we have seen, we have seen him ministering for the past three years. In fact, some of us in that gathering have actually seen him growing up as well need to remember that. We've seen him growing up, uh, and many have seen him uh, uh, ministering for three years as he's traveled around from town to town, done amazing things. We've seen him nailed to a cross. We've seen him buried, and now we see him alive. And then on this mountain, we see him 
somehow raise above us and then disappear out of sight. That's the ascension. But it's something very important that we need to think about. We are viewing that from our perspective, aren't we? We are viewing that from our feet on the ground here. We're seeing something happen. There is another view. There is another perspective. And the perspective is this. The view from heaven. I want you to imagine, if you can, what that might include. (laughs) What might that be? Because we see a human being rising in some sense, we don't really understand how in full detail, and disappearing out of sight. The heavenly perspective is the king's coronation. The heavenly perspective is the king stepping into his royal position. The change that takes place. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, book of Philippians chapter 2, and he, he wrote in, if you like, he captured the life of Jesus in a few verses, a few short sentences. He described the pattern of life that Jesus lived, a faithful life, an obedient life, and then he said that uh, he was nailed to a cross. And then he goes on to say, because he was obedient in that way, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the heavenly perspective of the ascension. It's that moment where Jesus is raised to a place where he receives a name which is above every name. And now, for those of you who want to think about a bit of real connection with the Old Testament, God says, I will give my name to no one. My name is above anything. Therefore, don't even name me. And then he says, I will give my name, my name, to my son. As I raise him to the most elevated place in the whole of being, the whole of existence. As Jesus ascends the throne. What we see in Revelation is A vision, a perspective that John received as he was granted for your sake and for my sake a little window. He describes it as a doorway. We see this in verse 2. Well, we'll go from verse 1. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
There's the picture. It, the way that John describes it is that I had a door into heaven. In other words, at that moment, by the power of the Spirit, he was given a sight into what exists at this moment in time. He was able to see it. The door opened so that a true existence, which is not normally visible, becomes visible. That's what we see. And it changed him and had a massive impact on him. So much impact that he recorded it and it's held for us today. In other words, the reality of Jesus on the throne is a current, close reality. It's just that most of the time, the door between our physical existence and the spiritual existence is closed. John had the privilege of having the door opened for a moment. When we have doors opened, when we have visibility of something, when we can see something, it can change everything. When we see, and I don't mean that we have the opportunity like John to see the king on the throne. We don't need to see the king on the throne because we can see the king on the throne there. That's all we need at this point in time recorded for us. But when we can see it, it changes us. When, I don't mean eyes. I mean when I get it. When I see it personally and understand the reality that I have a king on the throne. We work like that. Yesterday, I was doing a um, um, functional threshold pace test. Basically what it means is you sit on your bike with this screen in front of you and uh, for about 30 minutes you build up your pace and then you start for 20 minutes, you go all out as hard as you can for 20 minutes. And at around about 17 or 18 minutes... I'm feeling sick, I'm tasting blood, and my kind of vision is going a bit skewy. All of this kind of weird stuff is going on. And then this little uh, window comes up on the screen and it says, you can go a bit harder, it's only a minute to go. Do you know what I did? Went a bit harder. Why? Why? Because I could see it. I could see that there was just a minute to go. Because when we can see something, when we truly get a hold of something and grasp it and say that is true right at this moment in time, I, 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 can, I can take a hold of that as a reality. I've got a minute to go. How does the king on the throne impact us today? How does a vision and an understanding of the king on the throne impact us today? The first thing that we see is that he is a king beyond majesty. That's the way this is described. He is a king beyond majesty. Um, 
Some of you will know the ex-Liverpool footballer, Gibral Cissé. He's a nutcase. Great guy, nutcase. He's mad. In 2003, he bought a house which resulted in him him being uh, the Lord of Frodsham. (laughs) Lord of Frodsham is now the official title of Gibral Cissé. Do you know what? The fact that he's Lord of Frodsham makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. Even if you know him really well, it makes no difference to your life whatsoever. Because being the Lord of Frodsham is insignificant. It's irrelevant, relatively speaking. You know, you might know somebody else who's bought a square foot of Scotland and can call themselves some highfalutin title. You might own a star. It means nothing. But Jesus is the Lord of everything. He is beyond majesty. And what John is writing in this way is, as he's, as he's having it revealed to him, he's trying to encourage you and me to see this. Through him, our connection is not to an insignificant nobody. Our connection is to the supreme Lord of all creation who is beyond majesty. That's the window that opens up so that when you and I are on our day-to-day business, when we are going through the issues and trials of life, when we are facing this difficulty and that difficulty, we need to be reminded what is the living reality which is currently shielded from us. The living reality is that we are connected to the Lord beyond all majesty. It's written in a way which is um, particularly described that uh, that is relevant to the day. So uh, we're talking about the ancient world. How did we understand supremacy in the ancient world? We understood supremacy in, you know, broad brush terms by who had the biggest throne. In simple terms, who had the biggest throne? I don't think we probably describe majesty in quite the same way these days, but it's a fitting description for the day. I don't know how we describe majesty these days. Who owns the most expensive football team? Who's got the biggest yacht? Whatever it might be. They're all tiny, aren't they? In the ancient world, it was who had the biggest throne. In other words, the supreme ruler, as you engaged with that supreme ruler and came into the presence of that supreme ruler, that supreme ruler's prominence became breathtaking before you. We saw that as we looked at the story of Esther over the past few months. One of the things that Uh, the king was insistent upon was that you could not just come into his presence. His throne, reputedly, was magnificent. It was gold-encrusted and it was incredible and it was raised up so that when you came into his presence, you are reminded of his grandeur. 
Look at the way this is described. We see someone sitting on the throne, was on a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. You know, Jasper and Ruby, in relative terms to us today, in relative terms, is not that special. I know it is, you know, if you were in a Jasper or a Ruby uh, wedding ring, engagement ring, it wouldn't be a wedding ring generally, would it? You know, if you were in a Jasper or Ruby engagement ring, right? I'm not dissing it. I'm not saying it's of no, you know, it's not paste, honest. It is of some value. But we don't treat Jasper and Ruby in quite the same way as the ancient world, do we? It's not breathtaking to us. But the words that John is using is he's using something which if you, if you looked like that, it meant that it wasn't just that you were surrounded by incredible majesty. You were You are incredible majesty. It doesn't say he was on a throne that was encrusted with Jasper and Ruby. It says he was that. His very being was incredible beyond words. The one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby... A rainbow that shone like an emerald surrounded and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 elders. We'll come on to that in a minute. Uh, a, rain, a rainbow. Well, you know, we can't create rainbows. Uh, I'm not sure actually whether we can now create rainbows in the laboratory, and probably we can, but we can't create huge rainbows in the sky as far as I'm aware. We can't do that. Nature can create rainbows. And yet this throne has a permanent rainbow. Uh, Richard of York gave battle in vain. Do you remember that? There's the colors of the rainbow. Uh, Yet this rainbow looks like emerald. It's just a confused picture, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. How can you have a rainbow that looks like emerald? Um, Because our language is struggling to convey the breathtaking majesty of the one who is on the throne. Now remember what we've said all along about the risen and ascended Jesus. In human form, he spent time with his disciples and he ate with them. He talked to them. He invited Thomas to come and to touch the wounds in his hands and in his side. A real man looks like this. Ascended to the most glorious, majestic, incredible role that the whole of being can imagine. And that is the one that we are in relationship with. So, how big do the trials have to be? How big do the challenges of life have to be that are bigger than that? Can you think of anything? I can think of lots and lots of things that feel like that, when I'm going through them, 
I really can. The reality of our human existence makes me feel like, um, you know, in, in experiential terms, in emotional terms, 18 minutes into the threshold pace test. But the reality is that there is a true friend. My Savior is on that throne. And it's not far away. You know, the ascended Jesus is not some distant part of of the outer galaxy. He is in a real sense right here. And yet that vision, that visibility, that opportunity to see it is just curtained from me at this moment in time. But my friend is on that throne. If we could take a hold of that, if we could see that on a day-to-day basis, if we could really believe it, if we could understand it, in the challenges and trials that we go through, we, we would be changed people. Really, we would. You know, a pathetic little test on a bike. I could go for another minute because I could see something. If I could see in my mind, in my heart, in my being, a true understanding of Jesus on the throne, it would change so much of my emotion, my response, my fears, my feelings, how I view my current situation, how you view your current situation, if we were able to take a hold of that vision. Now, by the grace of God, John was given that visibility. I'm sure it helped John, exiled on Patmos, but I know that it has helped countless believers for the past 2,000 years who felt the equivalent to being exiled on Patmos, cast off from everything, feeling as if the whole of the created order is against them. Our friend is on the throne. Secondly, we see that that throne is in a sense all-seeing. So that throne might exist. It might be there. It might be that it's shielded from us. But here's the question. Is it disconnected? You know, we can be literally meters away from the most breathtaking experience. You know, we can be walking past a great palace where there is an incredible banquet going on. But the thickness of the wall however thick a palace's wall might be, that separation means that what is going on in there is absolutely irrelevant to us as we walk along the street. It's irrelevant to us. What's going on in there is disconnected from us. What's going on in there has absolutely no care whatsoever for us walking along the street outside. It doesn't matter that we're out there. Is that, it's possible that that's how the throne of heaven works. 
It's possible that there might be this great majestic party going on in heaven where Jesus is being honored and glorified and it's all looking in there. And yet this tells us that that is not the case. Because it goes on to say, look at verse 6, in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In other words, there is some sort of separation. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. There's all sorts of strange perspectives going on. What is that? What, what language is that using? It's saying quite simply this, that there is a connectedness between the created order and visibility. They're covered with eyes. You know, if we read it, um, there were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. Covered with eyes, and one looked like a lion. Just take that first one. Quite honestly, you can't look like a lion covered in eyes, can you? It just doesn't look like a lion if it's covered in eyes. So it's saying something different. It's saying that this concoction of the created order has visibility and resonance and connection. Outside, there is a view. There is connection with that throne and what is going on. There are created order represented by these creatures. has visibility. In a sense, what it's saying, there is sight. It's looking out. <laughs> looking out towards the reality of our existence. It's not looking in. It's looking at the one on the throne for sure. But front and back means that it's looking everywhere. It's looking outwards as it's looking in. That's what the creatures are doing. As they look at the throne, they've got to be looking outwards as well because they've got eyes on the front and the back. They don't literally have eyes on the front and the back. It's just telling us that the sight is there. It's a bit like saying that palace... It's not a brick wall. It's windows. <laughs> and all of those taking part are looking out on our existence. Not kind of looking out saying, ha, ha, we're in here and you're out there. Saying, no, there is connection, there is desire, there is heart, there is affection for what's going on out here to what's going on out there. For those who are connected to that throne. That visibility says two, two things really. For a start it gives us encouragement. That those challenges are not ignored. Those difficulties, those hardships, those injustice. Even our own failures. Are not outside of sight. But it also says that the injustice outside, the fact that we see things going on in this world, is not lost to the throne of Jesus. He is not a disconnected king. 
He's not a disconnected king. If you've got the opportunity, have another look at Revelation chapter 4 because there's a fascinating little connection that those those, uh, 24 elders actually make reference to the created order and the fact that the created order worships God as they lay down their thrones. Have a look at it later on. There is a glory and a majesty that there is a connectedness between the created order and the throne that is worshipping. It is all seeing. There is a hope and there is a warning in that. There's a hope and a warning. On the one hand, (laughs) my king sees me. My king sees you. Those of you who watched the movie Avatar, there's a little phrase that's used in that which speaks incredibly powerfully about the connectedness between those big, tall, blue people. <laughs> says, the phrase that's used is, I see you. It didn't mean I see you. It meant I see you. Deep down in here, in my heart, there is a connectedness in my sight of you, one to the other. My king on the throne sees me. He sees me. There is a connectedness. He has my heart. We've sung it already today. He has my heart. When my heart is straying, when your heart is straying, when you're rebelling, when I'm rebelling, when I'm feeling as if I'm failing, when I'm feeling angry, fearful, my king sees my heart. Because that throne is not disconnected from the reality of now. And finally, that throne, because of all of those realities, is worthy of worship. If it is a throne, which in a real sense is beyond majesty, and connected to us, not disconnected, if it is both of those things, then it is worthy of worship, isn't it? My king is worthy of worship. What does that mean? What does worship mean? Does worship mean that I can walk in here on a Sunday afternoon at 10 to 5, sing for a few minutes, I've done my worship, walk out, carry on with life? Is that worship? No, that is not worship. Worship is that real understanding That if that is the reality of the king on the throne who is connected to me, it's not a few hours on a Sunday afternoon connection. It's a connection every minute of every day, which means that my life is reorientated. It's reshaped. It's redirected towards the throne, towards the king. 
He's won my heart and he has won my life. And that is a privilege, not a painful demand. He has won my heart. And I, I tell you now, I'll say it because I know what I'm like and therefore I'm saying it for all of us. I'm going to carry on for the rest of my life continuing to find ways to, because of my human nature, rebel against that lordship. I'm going to find ways to rebel against that. And by God's grace, he's going to keep on challenging me and pointing out those areas where I need to change, where I need to reorientate my life. That is the reality of my Christian walk. That is the reality of your Christian walk. But within that, the king on the throne has got my heart. And he is reorientating me. And he is reorientating you. And he is changing you. And you are being moved to worship him with all of your being. Why? Because one day that throne is going to become visible. At the moment, it's invisible. At some point, that living reality of the present throne of Jesus is going to become visible to everybody. And there is going to be a new created order and our everyday experience for all of eternity is going to be directed towards satisfaction in that throne. I pray that we might be able to change today because of that reality.